Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Was Thomas Jefferson a conservative? This is a really important question, one we'll talk about on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll and purchase classes there. It helps keep this podcast free of charge. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com or going to Spotify for podcasters. You can uh, sign up for a subscription there, or you can also click on the super thanks button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. Of course, it is Christmas season if you're watching in December of 2023. So if you want to get that Brian McClanahan Show fan a gift, well, McClanahan Academy classes make great gifts. So do my books. Just click on the uh, books tab at my webpage, or you can go to Barnes & Noble, Amazon. All my books are available for purchase there. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, a painless way to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And comment on YouTube for the algorithm. It does help get more eyes and ears on the show. And as always, send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right, so Talking about Thomas Jefferson, this is a big topic, one that uh, has got so many voices and so many opinions. Jefferson is an elusive figure. I wrote a piece years ago, and it's in my one of my books, one of my most recent books, um, about Jefferson, uh, the Jeffersonian tradition. But the, the piece was uh, about Jefferson and how he is someone to everyone. And that makes Jefferson a difficult character to peg down. So you've got a book by Kevin Goodsman um, that came out just a few years back. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, I think it was Radical Revolutionary or Thomas Jefferson Radical. Um, and the, the book of that, the, that book uh, makes a case that Jefferson's most important contribution to America was federalism. But within Virginia itself, he was a reformer. And I think that's important to note about Jefferson. Jefferson could be uh, an innovator. He could be interested in change and other things, but it was really confined to Virginia. 
Those who were conservative in Virginia often looked at Jefferson as more on the left in that state. But when it came to the United States, he was a Federalist with a lowercase f. He always believed in the Federal Republic. He always believed that the states themselves should be able to control their domestic concerns. And in our mind today, that would make Jefferson more of a conservative. And, and most importantly, he would be someone who would not really be interested in any kind of federal innovation that would be forced on all the states, whether through the court system or the Congress or the presidency. So that's an important distinction to make, that kind of conservatism. Adherence to the original idea of a federal republic in the United States is very important. Now, Clyde Wilson has a new book out on Thomas Jefferson, and if you're, again, you're looking for a Christmas gift, this would be a good one to pick up. The title is Looking for Mr. Jefferson. Uh, it's by Shotwell Publishing. And I want to focus on one of the essays. It's a short essay in the book, but it, it highlights this question. This is, a, this is a book review that he wrote years ago um, on Dumas Malone's, uh, one of the volumes of Dumas Malone's series on Thomas Jefferson. That was a great series, a great biographical series on Thomas Jefferson. In fact, it's really the gold standard. But if you want to go out and pick um, just a, a long-form biography, go get Dumas Malone and his multi-volume biography of Thomas Jefferson. This essay talks about, of course, that, that series, that, that series of biographical sketches. But it also talks about Jefferson as a conservative. In fact, the title is Thomas Jefferson Conservative. Now, it's important to note that a lot of people bristled at this accusation that Jefferson was a conservative, or this, this characterization, I should say, is that Jefferson is a conservative because Jefferson had long been considered somebody on the left. He was one of them. He was a progressive. Uh, he was someone that the left admired. What Clyde Wilson does here is turn that on its head, and I think that's a really important thing to do because, as he says in other parts of the book, this book is really worthwhile, Jefferson is elusive. Jefferson liked to... Uh, discuss issues. He liked to play in his letters. He liked to think about things when he was writing letters to various people. And he often would please people in letters by discussing their ideas. Jefferson, you can't really pin down Jefferson in his own letters at times because he said so many things to so many different people. What you have to look at in Jefferson is his actions. How did he think about federalism, for example? Well, that would be a very conservative thing. What about education? And this is what Kevin Goodsman does quite well in his book on Jefferson. He, he covers these different areas. Jefferson wasn't really going to rock the boat in Virginia too badly, at least by the time he got to middle age. He had generally mellowed in some of his earlier radical inclinations. But Jefferson's commitment to federalism is something that would make him today a much more conservative individual. If you're committed to federalism, you're going to realize that some states are going to do things you don't like. And that has to be okay. Because that's what keeps the union together. I mean, look, Jefferson, while he would certainly believe that secession was not illegal, um, he thought secession was uh, a bad idea, but he didn't think it was illegal. But he did think it was possible. Uh, he did love the union. I mean, look, just about everybody in the founding generation loved the Union. They thought it was the thing that really uh, allowed them to prosper. But they had to calculate the value of Union. 
And if the Union became aggressive and oppressive, then secession was more preferable. Now, there's this very famous letter that Jefferson writes where he talks about that, and he says, well, look, you know, um, if, uh, if we do favor secession, well, what's going to happen? We're just going to get the same thing here in the seceded states, and then a new confederacy, and it's going to go, it's going to happen all over again. So he was trying to argue against it, but he certainly didn't think it was illegal. He just thought it was unwise or impractical at times. So let me, uh, let me get to this particular essay because it's really important. Uh, Wilson says, in 1809, Thomas Jefferson yielded up the presidency and crossed into Virginia. In the 17 active years remaining to him, he never left it. The first volume of Malone's masterpiece, published in 1948, was Jefferson and the Virginian. The sixth and last is The Sage of Monticello. Jefferson begins and ends with Virginia. Keep this fact in mind. It will save us from any errors and lead us near to the truth as we can get in regard to this sometimes enigmatic founding father. So, I think that's important. Clyde points out. It's Virginia. He goes, he's Jefferson the Virginian, then he's the sage of Monticello. He, he bookends his life being in Virginia. He was always a Virginian first. That was his country. That was his country. Virginia was always his country. So Wilson says, no great American, not even Lincoln, has been put to so many contradictory uses by later generations of enemies and apologists. And therefore, none has undergone so much distortion. In fact, most of what has been asserted about Jefferson in the last hundred years, and even more of what has been implied or assumed about him, is so lacking in context and, and proportion as to be essentially false. What we commonly see is not Jefferson. It is a strange algorithm of composite in which the misconceptions of each succeeding, succeeding generation have been combined and recombined until the, until the original is no longer discernible. So, we have a composite. We have an image of Jefferson that's not Jefferson himself because everybody wants to claim Jefferson. You go back to the progressive movement. And you look at someone like Herbert Crowley who wrote a book entitled The Promise of, of American Life where he, he combined Jefferson and Hamilton and made this composite character that became the modern progressive. But it wasn't Jefferson and it wasn't Hamilton. It was both, you see. Because it didn't really under, you didn't really get who Jefferson was, and in fact, you didn't get who Hamilton was out of that. It was both. Wilson says, presuming we wish to know Jefferson rather than simply to manipulate his image for our own purposes, Malone is indispensable. Jefferson and his time is a conspicuous example of an increasingly rare phenomenon: genuine scholarship. I mean that term as a compliment. To, donate, um, to denote a work that avoids the extremes of pedantry and superficiality, that is exhaustive, thorough, honest, balanced, delicious, reasonable, and executed on a noble scale. From alone, and specifically from the latest volume, we can, if we wish, begin to discern the real Jefferson. And that Jefferson is, in the broad outline of American history, identifiable in no other way than as a conservative. The real Jefferson is most visible in his last years. I didn't mean that by this that Jefferson was one of those proverbial persons who was liberal in youth and conservative in old age. There was no conflict between the young Jefferson and the old Jefferson except in the perceptions of image manipulators. Jefferson was of a, was of a piece. His main themes were constant. But I do not mean that the conservative Jefferson emerged most clearly in his last years when he was not in office, when he was not bound by the necessary compromises of leading a party or speaking in the voice of community consensus rather than his own voice when he was down home in his natural environment. 
But I do mean, he says, that's what Jefferson was. I do mean this. I not, do not mean, I, I misread that. He means that Jefferson was that person when he was at home, when he could speak for himself, when he wasn't worried about politics and party and the compromises that come out of the presidency. The real Jefferson emerged when he went home and he didn't have to worry about anything anymore. He could just be him. He could just be him. Now, Clyde Wilson is saying there's a continuity between the young Jefferson and the old Jefferson, that he wasn't you know, liberally young and as he got older, that Jefferson was the same no matter what. That's his, that's his contention. How do we get so far afield that it has taken half the lifetime of a great historian to recover the wherewithal of a proper understanding of Jefferson? First, New Englander is embittered by the half-century setback which Jefferson and his friends administered after 1800 and their political style and goals painted him as an effet snob, a visionary, a kind of squeamish Jacobin. And the New England Federalists, if the New England Federalists and their descendants lacked political power, they made up for it in cultural power. Their loss at the polls was turned into a victory in the sophisticated battleground of historical writing. The understanding of Jefferson and his accomplishments that was handed down to posterity was created by Henry Adams. Adams, with brilliance, painstaking care, and a cunningly contrived pseudo-objectivity, structured a perception of Jefferson and his times from which New American historians, until Malone, had never really escaped. Jefferson, even when viewed sympathetically, was judged by New England standards. This meant that the essential outlines of his Virginia frame of reference were obliterated. Thus, the mainsprings of his belief and action could not be detected accurately. Now, this is an important point to make. New Englanders wrote a lot of history, and often what we consider to be quote-unquote American history was written, was written by New Englanders. And with their own viewpoints and their own perceptions and their own biases, and Jefferson is certainly part of that. Now, what's really interesting about that is a New Englander named Mercy Otis Warren wrote a really good biography of the Jeffersonian period that was pro-Jefferson. And John Adams, she was very critical of John Adams, and John Adams hated it so much, he said women shouldn't write history. And what happened is John Adams' descendants took aim at this particular narration of the story, this telling of the story, and painted John Thomas Jefferson in a different light, and the Adams family in a positive light. You see, this is the history wars in the 19th century. That Mercy Otis war in history of America is much better in many ways than the Henry Adams history of Jefferson and America. Now, Forrest MacDonald liked Adams's history of Jefferson, and he was a Hamiltonian. When he wrote his history of Jefferson's presidency, he even said in the beginning, this is a hard book for me to write because I've been critical of Jefferson my entire life. So you have Forrest MacDonald, a great historian, great conservative historian who didn't really like Jefferson. And as Clyde Wilson is pointing out, this is born because the New Englanders didn't like Jefferson either, either and this is how Jefferson has been portrayed. So Clyde says Jefferson's admirers have done him a little better. It seemed that the Civil War and Federalist historians had repudiated and buried Jefferson forever. Then came along Vernon L. Parrington, the son of an English socialist but raised in Kansas, who rediscovered Jefferson the agrarian liberal. But unfortunately, what Parrington discovered was an imaginary combination of French philosophers excuse me, and Midwestern populists. Not the planter of Albemarle County. Parrington, Claude Bowers, and a host of other worthies soon turned Jefferson into the patron saint of Wilsonian 
ism, the New Deal and what currently passes for liberalism. But it wasn't just Parrington. You have to go back to Herbert Crowley. And I think that's important to note. Herbert Crowley was combining Jefferson in the late 19th century into the early 20th century, really early 20th century, and making him palatable to someone like Teddy Roosevelt. The Promise of, the, of American Life was a popular book for people like Roosevelt, T.R., and the Progressive Era. That's when Jefferson became the progressive. You had all these progressive historians, Parrington and others, and Claude Bowers. Claude Bowers, um, <laughs> Claude Bowers for a time was a pariah because he wrote a history of Reconstruction that a lot of people hated. Uh, but then he became, you know, more of a leftist and uh, more acceptable to the left. Clyde continues, thus by a strange piling up of ironies, the intellectual descendants of Jefferson's opponents converted him into one of them kind of an urban, liberal, Puritan dogmatist of egalitarianism. More recently, some of them, like Fawn Brody, have discovered that the evidence does not fit this image, that Jefferson never was a certifiable modern liberal. They should have admitted that they have been wrong all along. Instead, they chose to brand Jefferson as an aberration and a hypocrite for not being one of them. That is, for not being what he never was and never wanted to be. Jefferson was an American Republican, not a European Social Democrat. An important statement. He was an American Republican. An American Republican with a lowercase r. He was an American Federalist with a lowercase f. When he said we're all Federalists, we're all Republicans, what he meant by that, I mean, we often see that as an olive branch of the other faction, but what he meant by that is he was a real Federalist with a lowercase f. Jefferson was agrarian, not urban and industrial. Jefferson was a gentleman, which the class of admirers I'm talking about here certainly is not. All of these distorted notions of Jefferson have been possible only because of a lack of context, plausible because they have extrapolated one small portion of Jefferson and built an image on that foundation. This has been the most, conspic has been most conspicuous in the peculiar, dogmatic, ahistorical rendering of one phase of the Declaration of Independence as a piece of egalitarian revelation the proposition nation. So that's what's, I mean, look, that's at the heart of who, Je if, if you say the proposition nation and all these distortions, that's part of it. This is Lincoln's distortion, but it's also all the historians and everyone else who's followed and the Republican Party in the 1850s, that was their distortion, turning Jefferson into one of them. But he never was. Indeed, without this one distortion of Jefferson and of American history, the contemporary American left could hardly be seen to have any legitimate tradition at all. Even more peculiarly, this same dogma is embraced as a main tenet by the one school of conservative political scientists, the Straussians, right? So this is a neoconservatives and then the Straussians. This is what, look, this piece is 40 years old. This is what is important to note. This battle over the proposition nation is not new. This is something that's been going on for a long time. There is one other important reason for misreading Jefferson that must be taken into account. Jefferson can be misunderstood in the same way that any great writer is subject to conflicting interpretations. And Jefferson is important as a writer, thinker, and a stylist. If he had never held public office, the immense body of his private correspondence would still be one of the most important American cultural legacies of his period. That is an important statement. If he never held office, Jefferson would still be important. Can you say that about just about anybody else who's been in office in American history in the last, say, 40 years. 
would, uh, would Bill Clinton have been important if he had never held office? Absolutely not. How about Barack Obama? No. How about George W. Bush? How about George H.W. Bush? Absolutely not. If there was never any federal power, George H.W. Bush would have been nothing. You could say that Ronald Reagan had a certain cultural legacy because of his time as an actor. And you can certainly say Donald Trump had a certain cultural legacy because of his time as a real estate magnate and entertainer. People would have known who, I mean, leaving a, a cultural legacy is something else. I mean, Trump had a certain, in the 80s, Trump was very popular culturally. Would Joe Biden be anything if it wasn't for political office? Absolutely not. So out of the, out of the last, all those presidents I just mentioned, from Reagan to Trump, Reagan and Trump bookending, well, Biden after that, but Reagan and Trump would probably have the most claim to have been somebody without political office. All the other people in there, Republicans and Democrats alike, would have been nobody without office. Jimmy Carter was a farmer. Would he have had the same kind of cultural impact had it not been for the, for the presidency? Probably not, though he might have written maybe would have done some things that people would have paid attention to. There's a greater uh, chance of that than, say, Gerald Ford or Richard Nixon or Lyndon Johnson, all political thugs. Ford was just a patsy. Ford was just somebody. But he was only... Now, Ford, maybe because of his athletic prowess and... Um, time as an attorney and maybe some other things. He might have been more important, but Johnson, Nixon, come on. Uh, I mean, so you go back through all these people. This is where Jefferson had, Jefferson would have been important had it not been for political office. People would have gone out and read Jefferson anyways if they could have obtained his letters. Clyde says in his correspondence, he was imaginative, playful, speculative. He adapted himself somewhat to the person he was addressing. He liked to turn ideas around and examine them from all angles. Except in his most narrowly political activities, he wrote as a philosopher, not as a tactician. Further, he was intellectually polite and magnanimous. Dogmatists found that Jefferson did not contradict them in person. When they later discovered that he disagreed, they called him a hypocrite. He was not. He was simply a polite listener, a gentleman. Thus, Jefferson can be quoted against Jefferson. In order to see clearly the real Jefferson, we have to know the context. We have to know the whole corpus of work. We have to know which were the constant themes and which the occasional ones. This Malone has made possible. Who then was the real Jefferson, Clyde asks. What were the, these consistent themes? They are clear. None offer comfort to the contemporary left. This is where Clyde makes his case. None offer comfort to the contemporary left. First of all, Jefferson stood for freedom and enlightenment. That he is our best symbol of, for these virtuous goals is Malone's central theme. That does not mean, however, that his thought can be twisted to support something that very different men with very different goals postulate to be freedom and enlightenment. His concepts of freedom and enlightenment were always rooted in the given nature and the necessities of his Virginia community and always balanced harmoniously against competing claims. Read Jefferson on the need for every citizen to be a soldier or his prudential limits that have been observed in the French Revolution or the inappropriateness of liberty for a people unprepared for it. Read of Jefferson's approval of Governor Patrick Henry's summary execution of a Tory marauder. Jefferson favored the liberty of the individual and the community, and he had in mind certain reforms that he felt would enhance them. 
However, Jefferson was nothing if not the enemy of programmatic government-imposed reforms. His whole career proved this. But read his reaction to the nationalistic program of our first progressive president, John Quincy Adams. Quote, When all government, domestic and foreign, and little, and little as in great things, shall be drawn to Washington as a center of all power, it will render powerless the checks provided of one government on another, and will become as venal and oppressive as the government from which we have separated. That's Jefferson, the Federalist. That's the thing that Clyde again points to as being an important part of Jefferson as conservative. All power arrogating to the center in Washington, D.C. Jefferson was a Virginian. He favored the things that made Virginia better in his mind. He favored Virginia over all else. He really wasn't that concerned what happened in Massachusetts. Even his letter to the Danbury Baptist, and I've got a great class at McLean Academy reading Thomas Jefferson. Even his letter to the Danbury Baptist, which I cover, shows this. Well, I sure hope you Danbury Baptists figure this thing out in Connecticut because I can't do anything about it. It'd be great for you to have this, but that's not my job. It's his response. Jefferson is on record as fearing the harmful effects of slavery on the community, but he feared more the harmful effects of political anti-slavery. Read him on the Missouri controversy and you will correct a thousand misrepresentations. Jefferson, it is true, wanted America to be an example to all mankind of success of free government, successful free government. But when he said example, that is just what he meant, example. He gives no comfort to those who want to impose democracy on others, but much comfort to those who want to defend American democracy from all and any and all enemies. Jefferson, it is true, mistrusted the clergy. In this respect, he was typical of his generation. But Jefferson the citizen, as opposed to Jefferson the philosopher, lived within the church. Religion and piety troubled him not at all. What he feared was a sanctimonious, intermeddling, politicized Calvinist clergy. That is what we would call liberal churchmen. The sanctimonious, intermeddling, politicized Calvinist clergy. The political clergy. Jefferson was the advocate of a free economy, but he was not doctrinaire about it. Like all his values, his belief in the free market was balanced against other claims. He believed in economic freedom within a stable society. Malone's chapter, The Political Economy of a Country Gentleman, uh, by simply adherence to the facts, corrects four generations of distortions. When viewed in retrospect, he writes, Jefferson's reaction to the economic problems of his day can be better described as conservative. Again, Dumas Malone, Clyde Wilson, and lockstep on what Jefferson thought on some things. This is why this essay is so tremendous and why it should be read and circulated far and wide. Because Jefferson the liberal is a really incorrect statement. Jefferson the Virginian in what he did was a much more important statement. Jefferson championed public education, but it was not public education on the leveling Prussian New England model that later became the American standard. The traditional classical curriculum was to be supplemented by more modern and practical subjects, but not jettisoned to make room for them. It was to be an education competitive, elitist, based on a belief in a natural aristocracy of talents and virtues. The rich would always take care of themselves. The purpose of public education was to make sure that the talented ones who appeared among the poor would not be lost. That's very true. Jefferson wasn't interested in paying for education for everybody from the time they're born until the time they graduate from college. It was only for those who deserved it. This is the exact opposite of what modern American public education aims at, for its goal is to reduce the educational level to the lowest common denominator, which in effect guarantees that the poor but promising youth 
does not learn enough to rise above his station nor to compete with the privileged. The natural aristocracy, wrote Jefferson, I consider as the most precious gift of nature for the instruction, the trusts of government and society. We would not even say that the government is best, which provides most effectually for a pure selection of these natural arist aristocrats into the offices of government. You had to create an environment where the talented people could rise to the top. You didn't want to stifle that. You didn't want to stunt their growth by leveling everything. It still was an elitist education, but just because you were poor didn't mean you didn't have access to it. That was the point. And that way, you can look at that, you know, when you look at John Locke and the tabula rasa, he is firmly committed to the original intent of that phrase, which was if you had people of equal talents, but one had means and one didn't, you would raise the one that, had, that didn't have means to the level of the one that did. But it didn't mean that if people had unequal talents, you still try to raise them up because they're never going to get there. He wanted to ensure that the elite were elite. Dumas Malone's completed a great work, a work that is, like its subject, truthful, harmonious, balanced, fair, decorous, gentlemanly. What a rare thing for an American book in the 20th century, a book by a gentleman about a gentleman. So, this is a great essay, again, it's a short essay in this book, again, Looking for Mr. Jefferson by Clyde Wilson. Um, I'll be writing a little more about this in the email that I send out corresponding with this podcast. Uh, but if you're looking for a great gift, it's not an expensive book. You can get it on Amazon. Um, it's, uh, it's available there. Uh, uh, just a, a nice stocking stuffer or something to give to somebody who really wants to understand Thomas Jefferson in American history. I highly recommend it. There's so many good essays in it, and they're not long. They're, they're short vignettes, but they will really pique your interest and, and get you engaged with, I think, the real Thomas Jefferson, and you'll come out with a better understanding of who Jefferson was as a man and as an important American. All right. See you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.